and welcome to the Convex Conversation with me, journalist Helen Fosbero. Today's guest is at the cutting edge of innovation in the aerospace world. He's a visionary and modern-day Renaissance man who's following his passion for clean, sustainable flying for all and is proving his doubters wrong. George Bai is the founder and CEO of Bai Aerospace in Colorado, which he started in 2013. Eight years of hard work, leading a team of talented engineers, and he's close to FAA certification for his stunning two-seater all-electric training aircraft, the E-Flyer 2, which will revolutionise the way pilots train. And there's a four-seater and an eight-seater all-electric turboprop in the pipeline. George has clocked up more than 4,000 hours as a pilot. He served in the US Air Force as a fighter pilot and has been designing out-of-the-box aircraft since he left the military. George, thanks for making time to chat today. Is it true some of your designs started life on a napkin? Indeed, it is true. I think many entrepreneurial ideas are spontaneous, not out of the box in terms of technology trends or awareness of the news the media, the business case, but rather spontaneous in a discovery of an approach that might not have been considered before. To take full advantage of electric propulsion, the unique design around a very efficient motor and electric propulsion system brings a, a much better result as opposed to retrofitting a legacy aircraft with electric. So, uh, yes, indeed, many of our concepts uh, are really right off a scratch pad as I'm uh, perhaps in the middle of doing something else. Bring us up to speed on your all-electric aircraft and how things are progressing up by aerospace at the moment. There doesn't seem to be a day actually without a new headline of how you're getting on. It's moving very fast. The E-Flyer 2 prototype has been flying for over four years. One of the, I think, discoveries of by aerospace and electric aviation isn't just the media attention and focus of the last six months, kind of as the pandemic has diminished somewhat and we begin to emerge into new considerations for the economics of travel and flight. But actually, by aerospace, to your point, goes back many, many years. And we've had several prototypes the E-Flyer prototype in particular, in a very nearly the configuration that we're certifying today, has flown for over four years. Two different motors, several different battery modules, software changes, a cooling system. All of the validation and performance and economics for operations, the energy costs, the maintenance costs, all of that's well proven beyond a shadow of a doubt. So we're going into certification and production with very great confidence, not from an engineering perspective alone, not a PowerPoint or a concept, but rather real hardware, demonstrated tests and results, giving strong confidence for the business case ahead. And who is the E-Flyer 2 really aimed at, George? The E-Flyer 2, two referencing two seats, is a primary trainer. As you know, I'm a pilot myself, after achieving my private license, I went into the Air Force, became a jet pilot. I trained young pilots that wanted to become fighter pilots in a special program called NJEPT, Euro-NATO Joint Jet Pilot Training, at Shepard Air Force Base. And many of our friends from the UK, Germany, 
uh, all across uh, Europe in that NATO program were sent to Shepherd for this fighter pilot training program combining undergraduate, advanced, and then lead in fighter training all in, in a single program. Very exciting, very challenging, but also as a pilot, made me particularly attuned to the process of not just primary training, but the entire training spectrum to the very, very top elite fighter pilot outcome. And as I transitioned after Desert Storm and left the Air Force, I continued in a pilot training and aircraft development role with the brand new T-6 program, which again is a joint Air Force-Navy primary air crew training system. So further attention to all things training, all things around aircraft development. And that background later, I spent a couple of years working with Boeing on the development of their, what we called the TX at the time, now the T7, part of that development team. And so I've been kind of immersed in both training and aircraft development, advanced development. And those are the roots of the E-Flyer 2. In its configuration as a two-seat trainer, very focused on merging all of the benefits of electric with a very great demand from a business case for pilot training. Our training fleet averages 50 years old. That's old. That's not a typo. <laughs> That's old. Our training fleet averages 50 years old. It's conventional legacy propulsion system, consumes avgas. Aviation gasoline is expensive. The aircraft are difficult and expensive to maintain because of the age, in part. Uh, but, of course, also conventional engines are complex, many, many, 900-some-plus moving parts. So when you replace that with electric, you have both the simplicity as well as the efficiency of electric, but you drive down that maintenance cost. You drive down the energy costs, electricity as opposed to avgas, very, very inexpensive by comparison. So the operating cost is reduced to just 20% of a legacy trainer. And when the number one objection to our young people completing their pilot training is cost, it's fuel-based primarily. And on the other side, we have this old legacy fleet that needs replacement, along with a very great trajectory for the need for new pilots emerging post-pandemic now and on into the future, 5, 10, even 20 years projections for just a gigantic demand for new pilots. That in the collection is the basis for the E-Flyer 2. That's our primary focus with our launch product. That forms the basis for the E-Flyer 4-seater uh, and then E-Flyer 800-8-seater. That's the foundation of Aerospace. It's built around the business case, technology, projections, and of course, the tremendous efficiency and operating cost benefits that electric brings. Literally one-fifth the operating cost of a legacy trainer. So incredibly disruptive and beneficial in pilot training programs. It makes so much sense when explained like that, George. But did you have doubters and how did people react when a number of years ago you talked about all electric as opposed to perhaps hybrid? You know, it's a great story. My mother, when I was a young lad, introduced me to flight. I was eight years old. And my mother in those years, of course, a pioneer in her own right as a pilot. There weren't very many female pilots years ago. 
And so I was very proud and very happy to learn to fly and excited, kind of the vision of my life, if you will, just was consumed with becoming a pilot and a fighter pilot and so forth. What's interesting is that very same airplane that we learned on, of course, is still in flight in use today. Like I said, the fleet is averaging some 50 years old. And with that, of course, the demographics of all of our pilots, again, similarly in the mid-50s to mid-60s, many of us are, are coming to retirement age. And this is all we've known. And quite frankly, we love it, but this is all we've known. And of course, human nature is to resist change. That's not new. Any new innovation is somewhat resisted. There's skepticism around it. Whether it's a personal computer, a cell phone, there's many stories about every new product as it emerges. I think there's something famous from Henry Ford. You know, if I'd ask for a consensus about what products were needed, they would say, I want a faster horse buggy. No one imagined, of course, horseless or cars. And of course, on, on you go into the future uh, where we are here today. So yes, as we flew our first prototypes, the skeptics would uh, chuckle and say, you know, George, how long's your extension cord? <laughs> Uh, you know, and the audience would laugh. And of course, we'd laugh with them and yet with great conviction press on to the next stage because the outcome matters. It's not an exercise in science. I don't work for NASA. That's kind of cool. <laughs> it's not a scientific study for the sake of science itself. The outcome matters. I've been a part of aviation all my life. I've flown those airplanes. I've flown everything from a small airplane to a business aircraft, a business jet, Air Force jets, advanced jets. I've helped build, develop, design. It's my life. So the legacy now that I pass along and my fellow aviators pass along to the next generation, you know, it, it matters. It's our turn. And of course, the state of general aviation today, as I said, is, is diminishing. The fleet is aging. What are we going to provide the next generation of pilots, climate issues and concerns and all the rest of it, it all matters. So yes, I had my skeptics and uh, we would all smile or laugh. And yet I would drive forward with great conviction, great focus, because the outcome does indeed truly matter. Yes, there's challenges. Pioneering isn't easy. There isn't a roadmap out there that says, Here's how you develop the next uh, generation airplane. And oh, by the way, with technology that hadn't even been imagined for an airplane. It is indeed hard work. And of course, I've got a wonderful team to uh, help us achieve that. I love the fact that your mom, Marilyn, I think I'm right in saying, yes, was indeed. a pioneer in the 60s. And indeed, you must have had a lot of fun as a young boy. I think you had a Piper, didn't you? That you A Piper Cherokee 140. Yeah. I mean, great, great adventures, which I'd love to ask you about in a moment. But I also like the fact that all of these years on, looking at the design of the E-Flyer and seeing its beautiful, sleek lines and the elegance that it has... I gather some of that influence comes from mom. My grandfather was a professor, university professor, and each of my uncles, likewise, uh, some kind of research scientist or teacher professor as well. My mother, with all of the collective intelligence, chose to become an artist. I'm extremely proud of her, but very skilled a person and part of her growing up experience from my grandfather and grandmother was meet every challenge, drive forward without fear, 
And she was a pioneer herself as a pilot. Her emphasis on culture and arts and science uh, for me as a young person, you know, George, before you go play baseball, you need to practice playing the violin. Uh, (laughs) You have to take art classes. It's not just engineering and math, which I loved, and and physics. Um, So she drove in me. Indeed, my father is an engineer as well, of course. But in particular, I credit my mother because the artistic, the design aspect, the ability to capture in your imagination in three-dimensional space, being able to create an idea and give it substance and depth and dimension comes from my mom. And I am so proud of her. She built that into my DNA. It's not just be an engineer, but have an active imagination about creating the future. So all of those roots come through. You know, you talk about the napkin drawing. That's real. It's silly. Some people, well, yeah, we've heard that story before, but no, it's real. That design, George, was starting at a very early age because I can picture you in your grandmother's living room with your Lego designs on a piece of string. That's it. Landing them on her mantelpiece. So flying truly is in your DNA, isn't it? And it's no great surprise, I'm guessing, to the people around you, friends and family, that you are where you are today at the absolute cutting edge and revolutionising electric travel. Yeah, I would design my first airplanes with Legos and uh, use a string down the stairway railing to fly, practice flying my (laughs) early designs. So here we are. The dream comes true. What was it like for you when the E-Flyer, the first test flight took place? And as a very experienced pilot, did you feel that frustration that you weren't actually in the cockpit being the test pilot? It is quite frustrating. I'm a pilot's pilot. I love to fly, and I've flown just about every type of aircraft there is to fly. I enjoy it immensely. It is part of who I am. And yet, of course, as founder and CEO, there's a reticence from our board to allow me to be the first test pilot on that first flight. It's a valuable subset to make sure that we have specific talent doing specific tasks that they're well qualified for. So with some frustration, I have to say, and anxiety, I'm wringing my hands, watching my baby go fly, but I'm not there at the controls. And what emotions did you feel as you saw your baby fly for the first time? It's like a child being born, literally. It's the birth. It's the birth of a vision. It's coming to life. The first breath is taken in. It's like a child being born, part of the family. I can imagine. So exciting. I so, can imagine it. So exciting. So Maybe ex- even a tear or two. Oh, in really? There, possibly. Ah. <laughs> Let's get a bit geeky, but if you don't mind, keep it in layman's terms for our audience. But tell us a bit about the engineering behind the e-flyer, the electric motor, how far it can go, etc. So electric, it may seem obvious, does not consume oxygen. There's no combustion. Electric is simply like grandma's electric fan in the attic, the electric motor that may drive the lawnmower. I think we're well familiar with electric motors. They don't consume oxygen though. Nor is there a requirement for cooling as a legacy airplane. You need to drive a lot of air over those cylinders as they're quite hot from the combustion of fuel and air to drive the cylinders and, of course, create the torque for the propeller. So one of the fundamental differences between an old aircraft with a conventional combustion engine as compared to an electric aircraft is a very, very 
sleek nose. You don't have the large air intakes for cooling or for combustion. It's simply not required. An electric motor is in the vicinity of 95, 96, 97% efficient in turning energy or electricity into torque to rotate the propeller and the thrust. So a great advantage for electric, particularly a purpose-built and designed electric airplane, is a very sleek nose, reduced drag as a result. We don't carry fuel in the wings, so my aerodynamics are also very sleek. And as a result, I have an airplane that can go quite fast with a relatively reduced amount of energy to achieve that flight speed. What we found in our flight test with a developmental test aircraft these last four years was just incredible performance for a relatively low amount of energy or torque or thrust. And this allowed a greater utility for the batteries to achieve that speed and for the batteries to help get us along in a further range and flight endurance. It's not just a direct comparison of energy storage from avgas, aviation gasoline, to batteries. It's an entire systems design. And part of the equation that most people don't just immediately intuitively grasp is the nature of electric propulsion systems is the ability to achieve a very, very sleek nose, reduced drag, and therefore enhanced performance, reducing the amount of energy by comparison to a legacy or gasoline-powered combustion engine. You've said it's not easy being a pioneer, and I'm sure it's not all plain sailing, but what were the problems that you used to lie awake at night thinking about, how am I going to solve this? You know, I guess over the years, particularly training the young pilots that want to become fighter pilots, you develop a kind of a, a tough skin you face your fears, you face your challenges. And in fact, of course, you must have that character to be a fighter pilot. If you can't face stress in this three-dimensional, high-G, high-speed environment, it's likely that a fighter pilot career is not in your future. So fear in and of itself is not something that concerns me. I don't lie awake at night in fear of the future, but rather I focus on accepting and meeting challenges. Call them opportunities or challenges, if you will. It's not fear-based, but rather it's opportunity milestone-based achieving the end result. And I have to say, again, this hasn't been done before. So there's not a supply chain of, of parts and pieces out there, technology that's at the ready to say, okay, here, George, here's your parts for your plane, or here's the technology or the battery packs or the motor controller or battery management. They don't exist. So I'm not just designing a new airplane, but everything in it as well from a propulsion system perspective. It's uh, not the assembly of components. It's the design of the components and then the assembly within the new layout of this aircraft. So yes, there are challenges and I do ponder them with keen focus, but not fear-based. I love a challenge. And you've got the E-Flyer 4 in the pipeline and the 4 refers to the seats and the E-Flyer 800, which I understand looks like it hopefully will be certified in four years' time, which I think is aimed more at the business traveller, isn't it? Can yes. you give us a little flavour of the, the E-Flyer 4 and the E-Flyer 8? Yes, the E-Flyer 4, if you were to stretch in length 
the two-seater, another 40 inches, a little over three feet, not quite four feet. Or add a few more Lego bricks. Indeed. (laughs) (laughs) Same difference, eh? You're adding room for seats. And doing that, of course, the outer mold line changes so slightly, but it does. It's a little bit wider. It's about a four-foot cabin, 48 inches wide cabin. This is a slightly bit more roomy, 46 inches for the E-Flyer 2, 48 inches for the E-Flyer 4. Of course, additional battery modules are added. You have a larger motor up front, but the system's architecture, the overall aircraft design from aerodynamics and structures is stretched and pulled, but follows the same overall layout. The overall systems are all related to, they have a family resemblance, if you will, based off the E-Flyer 2. So the E-Flyer 4 is a family iteration from the two, well advanced already, again, owing its heritage to all of the great work done on the E-Flyer 2. And of course, the developmental prototype test aircraft for four years uh, prior to that. So the four-seater comes along quite quickly. Within a year of certification, the E-Flyer 2, which should complete its test program with the FAA end of next year, end of 2022, into the perhaps first part of 2023, depending on, again, that supply chain that we talked about before, maybe even the first half of 2023. But by the end of 2023, roughly six months to a year following E-Flyer 2, we should see the E-Flyer 4 certification and product uh, brought to market. Very, very exciting. 200 knots on 200 kilowatts, 75% power. That's extraordinary. That's extraordinary. Wonderful performance. Yeah. It's a speedster. And then, of course, the eFlyer 800, the eight seater that you mentioned, just recently announced. Great market for that. A wonderful launch customer with uh, Jetit and Jet Club. Rhineland Air Service in Germany, uh, we recently announced, also took some E-Flyer 800s. And then just this last week, Sky Aviation took 15 E-Flyer 800s. We're well over 100 units in the production backlog for the E-Flyer 800, just launched two or three months ago. So great, great demand for electric E-Flyer 2, E-Flyer 4, E-Flyer 800. The aviation space, the electric aviation space is moving very quickly. We hear about vertical takeoff and landing planes. A year or two ago, electric seemed such a long way away and certainly wasn't anything I knew much about. Now it feels like it's absolutely going to revolutionise flying for us. When you look in your crystal ball, George, and I'm sure you probably don't have a crystal ball as a fighter pilot, it's probably based a bit more on fact. But if Yeah, you, it's yeah. probably not crystal ball, but yeah, I got the idea. <laughs> but if you were to look ahead, what's aviation going to be like in the next 10 years and perhaps the next 50 years? The airports we have here in North America that you have in the UK and across Europe, Asia and around the world form the basis of our air transportation system. And without too much difficulty, challenges for sure, but the infrastructure around those airports support transportation by air, training, cargo logistics, and and so forth. That is the launch point that we can bring electric aircraft to operate from. The next five years, the next 10 years, we'll see airport-based transportation transition from legacy conventional fuels, aviation gasoline and jet fuel, to the trainers, the two-seat and the four-seat, 
and some of the initial eight-seat and larger aircraft will begin to operate, but operate from airports. That existing structure allows for the safe loading, unloading, air traffic control, all of the logistics, parking, security, safety, all of those things exist today in our airport systems. Now, certainly, we'll begin to see other kinds of transportation that don't require airports or a traditional airport, conventional takeoff and landing. We'll begin to see those emerge as well, but likely in smaller numbers as heliports or vertiports are quite expensive and not easily located. There's a great deal of community involvement, permitting, safety, all kinds of things around even a simple helicopter type or eVTOL vertiport, uh, as some are calling them. I believe they will come in due course. There needs to be a certification roadmap from IASA and from the FAA, from the government regulators. Safety technology challenges uh, remain. But certainly over the course of time, 10 or 20 years, airport-based electric transportation will really emerge and become a significant portion of air transportation. From 20 years on to 50, we'll see more of these other concepts begin to take hold. Larger electric aircraft will be built and operating from airports uh, also contribute you know, closer to the 30-40 year mark. Some of them may have alternative energy containment. People are talking about hydrogen as a possibility. There's fuel cell technologies. There are some pretty remarkable batteries in consideration too. So from an electric aircraft perspective, we take electrons and turn them into torque and into thrust through an electric motor, whether the storage system is lithium ion, lithium sulfur, lithium air, or some other fuel cell or hydrogen based. There are many ways that we're looking for that uh, to occur. An electric aircraft, George, won't just revolutionize passenger travel, I'm guessing with the world's greater reliance on logistics and need for parcel delivery and sustainability targets looming, do you think electric planes will also revolutionize the logistics world? The operating cost is about one-fifth the cost of a conventional airplane. So an electric cargo aircraft, at least potentially, could operate for a tiny, tiny fraction of the same cost to move that same amount of cargo with a conventional fuel-based avgas or jet fuel-based airplane. Electric will most certainly play a role in cargo transportation. Again, conventional takeoff and landing, all of the logistics and supply is available today around our airports. In time, other types of transportation will feed into the cargo and logistics. But I would point out one of the fun things about electric is they're almost silent. At 500 feet, my electric eFlyer 2 prototype could not be detected by human ears. So it's flying by down the runway and you barely hear a hum or the whir of a fan, so to speak, just even on the taxiway with the runway just across in front of you. Electric aviation doesn't just eliminate CO2. It also really reduces noise, almost eliminates the noise. And I mention that because airports across the world cease operations in the evening hours for noise. 
for community relations, these high-density urban environments that the airports exist in today are brought to a close. Noise abatement rules take effect, and the airport shuts down at night. Electric transportation can operate 24-7 because there is no noise. There is no CO2. And at the highly reduced operating cost, imagine the ability to deliver your just-in-time pouches, cargo, retail, a box of something through the you know a 24-7 operation and the great economics and the business case that brings when the operating cost is so low. So the existing airports today are busy, of course, throughout the day, but imagine adding another eight hours of operations through the night for the cargo carriers that are now very, very active in, in delivering these just-in-time smart packages for all of their customers around the world. It's interesting, George. I mean, as a former fast jet pilot, and I haven't dug deep enough to find out exactly what planes you flew, but I'm guessing you flew planes with the, the afterburners and the wonderful noise of takeoff. So it's fascinating for me to hear yes, you embrace the silence. Do you, do you miss that noise at all? Those of us who have uh, military background, many in the North America, uh, some of our partners in NATO and a few partners in Asia flew the F-5 uh, or the T-38, which is a derivative of the Northrop F-5. I flew the T-38 advanced jet trainer, which was indeed a supersonic aircraft with afterburners. And the Air Force Thunderbirds flew the T-38 for many years in their demonstration team. The T-38 broke the time to climb record in the 1960s. It was a very, very high performance. And still today, believe it or not, today, still training advanced jet pilots here in the U.S. at that same NJET program, I would point out. And of course, many of our NATO and other friends around the world are still operating F-5s and T-38s for advanced training. And yes, it does make a beautiful sound <laughs> in afterburner. It's a very pleasant sound. Uh, I love it. Of course, for those uh, living nearby, it may be a nuisance in the evening hours, as I mentioned, as they're trying to carry on with their family or friends. And how do you look back on your military career, George? Give us a flavor, because you saw active service, didn't you, in the Gulf, etc.? Well, I have to say, I, I served with great pride. I took my job very seriously, and, and I'm quite honored to have been able to serve in the Air Force and train so many uh, young pilots for their futures here in the U.S., as well as in that NATO program. I did serve as well all the way through Desert Shield and Desert Storm. I finished with Somalia with great pride. Felt like we were trying to make the world a better, safer place. And myself and many of my fellow pilots worked very hard day and night to help bring that to pass. So to at least some noteworthy outcome, it was a time of service that I'm very proud of and very honored to have done. And did you fly commercially after that? You know, many of my friends did. Probably half my squadron retired or left service in that time frame and went on to fly with various airlines. That's quite a different kind of flying than wartime flying or training fighter pilots where you're in formation and having a very intense experience. But many of them did and enjoy careers today in commercial pilot service. I went on into industry and aircraft design development. I continued to fly, of course, but not as a commercial pilot. And just going back to 
your childhood and when mum and dad bought the Piper, what kind of adventures did you go on? And was it those experiences that really got it into your blood and made you realise that that's what you wanted to do for a living? I have to say, even before I became a pilot myself, uh, we flew as a family in our Piper Cherokee. And it just changes the dimensions of experience. And what I mean by that is, as we drive our cars around, we're kind of in a two-dimensional experience of transportation. We go from A to B. We may take a family trip somewhere, a vacation, or we're commuting to work. But when you fly, it's a three-dimensional experience. Up in the air, it's not just a beautiful view, but the transportation is three-dimensional. It's up and down, left and right. And there's no road in the way that we drive our cars. Of course, there are pathways in the sky that we follow for instrument flight, uh, for navigation. But the freedom of flight just captures you. If you get up there and it, you know, it gets in your blood, it is the three-dimensional freedom of experience, of movement, and creating this yourself, manipulating the, the uh, controls through the sky, around the clouds, whether you're sightseeing, going to the coast, as we did, or up to view some beautiful mountains, to go up and down the West Coast or up to Glacier National Park in Montana to see family in Canada. All of those wonderful adventures as a young person just changed my view. It opened up a whole another dimension of possibilities. And in those days, would it have been your mother flying? Both mom and dad flew. So I flew with each of them and sometimes they were flying together and I would be in the back seat. The Piper Cherokee went 40, had a small bench back seat. And of course, for a child or two, it wasn't hard to carry on with a normal flight. So oftentimes it was training currency and the local pattern, but it wasn't uncommon for us to take a trip up the West Coast or uh, over to the Cascades or even on up to Montana and Canada together. So I got to see it all. Boy, was it exciting. And how old were you when you first got the chance to have a go yourself? At age 16, of course, I became eligible to become a private pilot. But it was actually in college that I started my pilot training and completed my private license in my very, very early 20s. So I've been logging time officially since age 22. Do you still remember what it was like the first time you went solo? <laughs> Boy, do I. And I think any of us who are pilots have certain milestones, certain check rides, you know, our first private license check ride and such. But that, that very first solo, boy, is that a big deal. You know, they're carrying on in the traffic pattern and uh, instructor says, uh, oh, one moment, let's pull off to the ramp here. And I'm kind of like, what do you mean? And, you know, we pull off and he unbuckles and looks over at me and says, George, you're ready to go solo. Now, I want you to remember this. Student pilot first solo in, in your radio calls, but carry on, you know, back to the taxiway for you and I'll see you after you've had a couple of circuits. And he walks off and I'm kind of looking at him going, uh, you're sure about this? And he goes, on your way. So, you know, close up the door and buckle the seatbelt and around the traffic pattern you go. Oh my gosh, what a what a day. And um, if you get it, you'll never quit. It's just becomes a part of you at that point. And of course, some stop at that point or shortly after. But if you really get it and gets in you like it did me, um, it becomes part of your passion, part of your life. 
George, I'm a very different age to you were in your 20s right now. I'm a mom of teenage children. Actually, I don't think I reveal quite how old I am because I still pretend I'm 37, but I'm afraid it's in my blood now. I've been doing a lot of flying recently in little Cessnas and Pipers. And so my ambition is to learn to fly from scratch with my new business partner, who's a former Red Arrow, which is like the Thunderbirds, I guess, the British equivalent of the Thunderbirds, and a Tornado pilot. And his ambition for me is to be the first person here to go from zero to solo on a two-seater electric plane like yours. Do you have any advice? Embrace the experience. Do spend time studying. The experience of flying is much more enjoyable when you have confidence in the ability to operate the instrument systems. And by that, I mean what I would call chair flying or practice on the ground, picturing in your mind the process of doing a walk around the plane, getting in and strapping in, becoming increasingly familiar with the checklist and particularly radio calls. Many new pilots kind of fumble on those first radio calls. You know, what do I say when I'm on the ramp? What do I say when I'm taxiing? What do I say when I'm ready for takeoff? And the various positions around the traffic pattern in flight, if I'm leaving the pattern and coming back and so forth. The more familiar and comfortable you are with that, the more you've kind of practiced before you fly, enables the experience of flying to be so much more enjoyable because you're not fumbling with how do I make this call on the radio or how do I change the radio dial? What am I looking at on the instrument panel if I'm referencing the gauges and such? So all I would offer is a little bit more time chair flying and practicing on the ground, particularly the checklist rhythm and radio calls makes the flight training experience so much more enjoyable because you're not in fear of or or trying to look down and focus on uh, how do I change that radio frequency again instead of enjoying the flight, keeping your head up and manipulating the controls. That's wonderful advice. I'd like to end, George, by asking how you feel about Bioaerospace. You said at the beginning that you've got a wonderful team behind you. It's your name in the title. You're obviously leading the way, but it's all about teamwork too, isn't it? And working with really talented people when you're pioneering. It absolutely is. The ability to build a team is the ability to succeed or failure to do so makes the challenge so much harder, so much more difficult. So as I look around me every day with great pride, I have just an amazing team. And I believe our chance of success is so greatly improved by the team members around me, the wonderful, I would call them tier one suppliers that work with us to create these new components, the new technology, the storage system for the batteries, the motor and such. Oh my gosh, I am so grateful for both the team and our suppliers to make the outcome so much more possible. And then of course, the market we serve is encouraged and has confidence improved because of the team and the suppliers working with us to get those airplanes to them. So it's a great day. I am so excited to do what we do every day. I look forward to work every day. It is indeed my passion, but it's with confidence that I look to the future because of the team and the suppliers that we have around us. And George, although you weren't allowed to be the test pilot for very valid reasons, presumably at some point you'll fly the E-Flyer too. Oh, of course. Yeah. 
And uh, that'll be a very nice day for me. That's for sure. That'll be a day of achievement. Looking forward to that a lot. I'm sure you are. And we've been looking forward to chatting to you a lot. This has been in the diary for the last few months. And it's been just as much of a treat talking to you as I anticipated it would. Thank you for being so generous with your stories. It's lovely to hear about your background as well and how the e-flyers have come about. And we wish you the best of luck. I can't wait to see your planes in the skies and hopefully meet you in person at some point, I hope. I do as well. Thank you so much for the interview today. It's been a delight for me. Oh, thank you very much. You've been listening to George Bai, founder and CEO of Bai Aerospace in Colorado and designer of the all-electric e-flyer aircraft. Thanks very much for your company today. Do download and subscribe to our series at convex.podbean.com or search The Convex Conversation on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts, or just ask Alexa. I'll be back next week with another great guest, so see you then. Thank you.